This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We are uh, beginning kind of officially today. Last week we did a message on the background of John, and we'll really uh, begin the book today. Uh, last week I mentioned some resources I want to let you know we have at our resource uh, center. Normally when we go through a book of the Bible, we offer a commentary or two that's accessible and, and helpful so that you can read ahead if you would like or read following up uh, to get more out of the, the scripture we're studying. Last week I really promoted the study notes from the ESV study Bible. So you have that Bible, you've got a good commentary uh, you know, with you. Here's two others that we're carrying at the Resource Center. This one is called The Message of John by Bruce Milne. Bruce Milne. He's not the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh. That's AA, not Bruce. But uh, Bruce Milne, uh, The Message of John. This is accessible, helpful. It would just kind of give you uh, a, a breakdown of ver it's verse by verse. would help you understand uh, the passage. I'm using that one. I'll also be using this one. Let's Study John by Mark Johnston. Let's Study John. This is a series that goes through numbers of books of the Bible, and this is the one they have for the book of John. This is even more abbreviated, uh, and this might have a little bit more emphasis on application than Milne would. Um, so there's two books we have at the Resource Center. I also have some recommendations for some other commentaries. It'd be a little more technical, perhaps not as accessible, and I'll post those on the city. You can look on the Sunday Sermon page, and there is stuff in that group that I'll be posting on this series, including some other resources uh, that you can study. If you're so interested, you can go there and look. Let's pray, and uh, we will launch in here to John 1. God, we pause today, and we look to you. We recognize your greatness and your glory, and we ask you to speak to us now. We ask that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to behold you and to respond to you today. God, move in our midst uh, in power through your scripture, Lord. I pray that you would give us attentive minds to seek to worship with our mind and understand um, a passage filled with mystery. We just pray that we would bow before you and respond to you today. Show us the Savior is our prayer. Lord, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Chuck Swindoll wrote the following anecdote. He said, two men were standing and looking over the Grand Canyon, seeing the great depth of that world-famous canyon. One man said, this is the hand of God. I am amazed at the Grand Canyon. The man next to him looked over the edge of the canyon and spit. And he said, that's the first time I ever spit a mile. Swindoll writes, I guess it's how you look at things. The same sight presented to two different individuals elicited two very different responses. One man looks and sees the hand of God and responds with awe 
and wonder and, and maybe even worship. The other guy looks and sees the same thing and misses an opportunity. He wastes his awe, we might say. He squanders his wonder. So rather than being in wonder and amazement at the work of God, he finds the ordinary breathtaking. He finds the trivial amazing and misses the extraordinary. He is wowed by plunging saliva and overwhelmed by something that is trivial and in the scope of eternity and compared to God, the distance that one's spittle travels is trivial at best. And that's really a dichotomy that I want to hold up in front of us this morning because we want to be people, as we study the Gospel of John, who have a reorientation of our awe, a reorientation of our wonder. We are created with the capacity to be, uh, to be struck, to, to marvel. We are created with the capacity to marvel, and we don't want to waste that capacity on the trivial. And as a society and as a culture, we are experts in being in awe over the relatively trivial. And so we are in awe and, you know, by, um, by a skilled musician. We are in awe by an athletic catch for a touchdown. Uh, we are in awe by the attractiveness of a celebrity. We are blown away by the newest technology and gadget. And while I don't think the study of John should lower, in, in some way just sort of minimize or lower or cause us to disregard human achievement, I don't think that's the purpose of the gospel, but we do want to take human achievement and we want to place it relative to the nature and character of God and reserve our greatest awe, our greatest wonder, our greatest amazement for God who he is, and what he's done. And this passage we're looking at today in John, John is going to start off his gospel with this glorious view of Jesus. And here's the point he's going to make in the first five verses that we are about to read. He's making the point that the Jesus of history is in fact the creator God of eternity. The Jesus of history is in fact the creator God of eternity. And that is truly awesome, wonderful, marvelous, amazing. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is John's introductory description of Jesus. It's philosophical, um, it's, uh, it's contemplative to a degree, it is profound, 
It's not real earthy. It's different than the other Gospels in their beginnings. But it tells us something very important about Christ. And what I would like to do is break down these verses and look at the nature and character of Christ. I had intended to cover the first 18 verses, but just looking at these five, I just couldn't get past them. So we're not going to go through the gospel five verses at a time and, uh, and complete, the, you know, complete the gospel on the same Sunday that the kids in the nursery graduate from high school. That won't be the goal. We will move through it at a faster clip, but we're going to stop. I just didn't want to rush over because I think the wonder of this passage should set a tone for how we read the whole gospel, even if we read it in larger chunks. And even if the accounts are stories and narratives and events and not uh, theological to the degree that this passage is. So let's see what we learn about Christ, and then I'll make some application about how we respond accordingly. First of all, we learn that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, He's referring to Jesus when he calls him the Word. That's not immediately obvious from the verses we just read. But if you read down a little bit, and you, you see that. Look at verse 14. In the begin- I'm sorry. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So he's going to say, this one who is the Word takes on flesh, that is, he has become human, and we see him as the Son to the Father. That is clearly talking about Jesus Christ. Not even, that's not even a debatable point. Uh, verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through. There he's going to name him Jesus Christ. So the whole passage is about the coming of Christ and the description of him. And so he calls him the Word. Now, um, the word had, th- th- this understanding of the word had both kind of Greek ideas and Hebrew ideas, and uh, some will debate, scholars debate over how much of which. I-, I just think it would make more sense that he has Hebrew ideas in mind. John is Hebrew. He's a Jew. He's, he's writing to a group that's not entirely Jewish, but probably many or if not most of his readers are. He's writing to readers th- throughout this gospel. He's going to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament um, law, how he fulfills the civil law, the ceremony. So I think it makes sense that that's primarily what he has in view, is that Jesus is the Word. He is the Word of God. As we read the Old Testament, the Word of God, that phrase appears a lot. What is a word? Well, a word is an expression. A word is an expression of an idea or of a a thing. A word is fundamentally a means of communication. So the Word of God communicates the person of God, the heart of God, the teaching of God, the character of God. Um, People hear the Word. People receive the Word. It expresses something. A Word discloses something. And the Word of God discloses, reveals, brings out into the open, makes known the person of God. So Jesus, the Word, is the one who discloses God. He is the expression, the exact expression of God. He is making God known. He is the communication of God. He is the Word. He is God's self-disclosure, God's self-expression. That's what the Word is, the ex- just like a Word is, the expression of God, the self-expression, the divine self-expression of God is Jesus the Son. 
And perhaps what's most staggering about verse 1 is not this identification that Jesus is the Word. What's most staggering about verse 1 is that in the beginning, the Word was existing. The Word was already existent. You see, Jesus is eternally existent. That's the first thing John wants us to know when he opens up this gospel. Jesus is at the beginning because he does not have a beginning. Jesus does not have a starting place. He is there at the beginning. Think about this introduction to John. In the beginning was the Word. This, this, this sounds very much like the introduction of another book of the Bible. Well, it's identical to the introduction of Genesis. The whole Bible begins with, in the beginning, God. And, and now John is going to reveal sort of the beginning of the new creation that comes in Jesus Christ, the new work, the, the coming of God to, to earth. And, and he describes in the beginning very much the same. In the beginning was the word that at the, at the, when creation is spoken into being, the word is present because he has no beginning. Now, the verb was that's used here and that's used throughout this verse is a, is a word that, continu- that uh, indicates a continuous action. So, in the beginning was continually the word. In the beginning was, in an ongoing way, the word. At the opening of the universe, at the grand opening of all creation, when there is nothing in creation and there is about to be everything created by God, At that point, the Word is continuing to be. He was present then because He is is, um, uh, pre-existent. He is eternal. He was and He continually was. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, Jesus always was wasing. He always was wasing. His being is continual. Continuous without beginning. And that's the opening point that John leaves with us. Now, I understand that is very deep at whatever time it is. I'm not looking at the clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, I don't know what time it is, but whatever. That's pretty, that's pretty deep thinking for a, for a Sunday morning, but that's what John tells us is that he's pre-existent. See, the account of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the Christmas story that we just celebrated, that's not the origin of Jesus. That's not when Jesus was created, because Jesus is uncreated. In the beginning was already present continuously the Word, the Son of God. So what's happening at Christmas is the eternal Son, the eternal God, Jesus, is taking on flesh and becoming human. That's what's happening. He's not becoming. He already had become. Wait, no, he never became. He already was. He's not becoming. He never becomes. He always is. But he is taking on flesh and becoming human, as it were. Someone paraphrased this phrase, actually, in that Let's Study John book that I just held up. Johnston writes this. In the beginning, there was someone who had no beginning. In the beginning, there was someone who had no beginning. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus is eternal. The second thing we learn in this passage is that Jesus is distinct from God. If you're listening to the podcast, do not turn it off for at least five minutes because if you don't hear the next point I'm going to make, this is going to sound heretical. So you need to hear these two points together. And you don't leave the room, same thing, for five minutes at least here. (laughs) 
Jesus is distinct from God because look what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he's making a distinction between the Word and God. It's a distinction that's made on every page of John's Gospel. John makes the distinction this way. He distinguishes the Son and the Father on every page of this Gospel. We see that they, are, they can be distinguished. They can be distinguished in their function They can be distinguished in their person. Distinguishing of function and distinguishing of their person. So, for instance, the Father gives the Son, John 3.16. The Father loves the Son. The, the, The Father is pleased with the Son. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And we see how the Son relates to the Father. The Son loves the Father. The Son is sent by the Father. The Son obeys the Father. The Son glorifies the Father. The Son prays to the Father, John 17. The Son does the will of the Father. So there is this distinction in role and person between the Son and the Father, and that distinction is eternal. In the beginning, the Word is already present, and the Word is, was, was continually without beginning with God. The eternal Son is distinct, a distinct person from the eternal Father. Now, here's the, here's the next point that has to be made that's made in this passage that balances this. Jesus is distinct from God, and Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is distinct from God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Now you can turn it off or walk out because we have to have the when you think I was saying that Jesus is not God by saying he's distinct. He is God. That's what the passage teaches. This is the crescendo of this passage. This is the big idea of this passage. This is the point that John wants us to get from the very beginning, which will affect how we read the whole book. Jesus is God. He wants us to get that here from the very beginning. He doesn't lay out the evidence and then say, see, Jesus is God. He makes the statement. He draws the conclusion, and then throughout will give us 21 chapters of evidence. And at the end, we'll say the same thing. The second to last event of when anyone has any contact with Jesus is Thomas. After he is resurrected, Thomas sees his hands, sees his side, and comes to this conclusion. When he sees Jesus as resurrected, he sees his hands and side, which were uh, pierced uh, and nailed during his crucifixion. Thomas says this, my Lord and my God. At the very end, there's only one other event after that. At the very end of the gospel, Thomas draws the conclusion. Thomas didn't have this gospel to read. He was living it as it was going on. The end of the gospel is the conclusion, Jesus is God. And the beginning of the gospel states, Jesus is God. He is eternal like God because he is God. That's the point. He is one in essence and nature with God. The Son is the same nature, the same essence, the same being as the Father, but he is distinct in his role and in his Uh, in his activity. Now, this is not a passage about the Trinity, but you can see the foundation of that doctrine right here. You see the foundation of the doctrine which says the Son and Father, and later we'll see the Holy Spirit is viewed the same way. The Son and Father are distinct. Both are one God, and that is mystery. There's deep, deep mystery there that I won't be able to solve 
uh, fully and plummet, right? Well, I never will be able to do so. There is profound mystery. The word is God, and here's what's really startling, that in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We meet awe right at the beginning of John. We don't meet awe because Jesus is called the word. We meet awe because this Jesus is eternal. This Jesus is with God and is God. And this Jesus took on flesh, verse 14, and dwelled among people. God came to earth and washed people's feet. God came to earth and was moved with compassion and healed sick people. God came to earth and interacted with folks that no one else would interact with, like lepers, that religious people would not interact with, like prostitutes. God, perfect, eternal God, became man and was born in in a poverty type of environment. He was born in a stable with animals, and God who is eternal with no beginning and no end, is placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough. That's what's astounding. Love football. Love a great guitar solo. Love amazing technology. But none of that deserves consideration compared to this. That God Almighty became man and came to us. And not only did those things, but ultimately gave his life to die as our substitute for our sins. That's breathtaking. That's breathtaking. And so much else that we give our time and our thought and our energy to is plunging spit in comparison. In comparison. He is God. So the point that he's starting with that we'll see all throughout John is The one who is sent from God, Jesus. The one who reveals God. The one who brings the teaching of God. The one who does the works of God. The one who who dies so that our sins are paid for before a holy God. The one who is resurrected from the grave by God is himself, in fact, God. That's what John wants us to marvel at and be amazed at, to be overwhelmed by that reality. That point is made in all of the Gospels. But John makes the point more repeatedly, and certainly in his introduction, more distinctively. Because John doesn't start the story of Jesus with his human lineage, like the other Gospels do, like Matthew and Luke. John doesn't start the story with angels appearing to Mary and and telling, or Joseph, and telling them about the coming one. John doesn't start with the Bethlehem story, which is powerful and glorious and wonderful, the story of, of Jesus in human history. John starts with eternity past, the same place Genesis starts, and says, at the very beginning, here is glory, the Son is present. The Son is present so that when we get to the human history of Jesus, which is not where we are in, verse, in this first verse, when we get to the human history of Jesus, it is all the more glorious because it is, it is placed upon this foundation of his divinity that he is God. You know, here's the reality in our culture, that a lot of people are okay with Jesus, 
A lot of people actually like Jesus that don't like the church. That's a real trend. We're in a day when, when spirituality is acceptable, and actually respect for Jesus and admiration for Jesus really won't get you into a lot of trouble. Uh, that pe- people like Jesus, they don't like Jesus' followers, typically. That, that's us. And we give them a lot of reasons. We're unlikable a lot of times when we're arrogant, self-righteous, um, judgmental, condemning, some of those kind of things where we're pointing the finger like and drawing us and them lines rather than we're all in this together and all need a savior, then we're very unlikable. So I understand that. But, but people are generally okay with Jesus until you make this affirmation. When you make the affirmation that Jesus makes of himself and that John makes of him, that he's not just a teacher, he's not just a healer, He's not just a humanitarian. He's not just the best human that ever lived. He's not just loving and kind. He's not just inclusive of those who are on the outside, though he is. He's not just that. He's God. That changes everything. Because then the one who speaks on the pages of this gospel is the one who created everything, the one who rules over everything, the one who is absolutely right, the one that we may not feel free to ignore, the one whose counsel we may not receive along with the counsel of many other self-help gurus because it's absolutely authoritative. God is authoritative, and if Jesus is God, in a pluralistic society, he doesn't just become one other uh, leader, one other religious person that we can equally affirm that we can coexist with everyone being, uh, everyone's ideas being of equal value. If he's God, what he says goes. What he says goes. And we must coexist with love and respect for everyone, regardless of their views, it's communicating the love of God to others, absolutely. But to say we must act respectfully towards others and to say that we must embrace all truth as equal are two very different things. And Jesus is going to cut through. This gospel is going to start out. He's going to cut through, and he's distinguished as different than anyone else. Our view of Jesus will determine how we hear him and how we respond to him. Is he a teacher? Is he the best teacher? Is he the wisest teacher, or is he God? Is he God? Listen, if you are here and you're um, unconvinced of this claim, then I would really like to welcome you and say, Uh, I hope that our church is a place for welcoming you, and I hope that we become increasingly a people that would welcome folks that don't agree with what I'm saying right now and that, uh, or are unsure or are unconvinced. We want to be a people that are open to caring for and talking about and serving and listening to. Skeptics, doubters, unbelievers, confused folks, all that sort of stuff. But if you are here and you are unconvinced of this claim, I would encourage you to investigate this claim. If you are unconvinced, do not be unconvinced because you're uninformed. That would be tragic. It would be tragic to miss God just because you, you just didn't know, you didn't, you didn't study, you didn't find out, you didn't give it any thought. See, what he's saying here at the beginning means that it, it's probably in your best interest to not ignore Jesus. Jesus is the most influential person in history. That's not a statement of faith. That's a statement of fact. He's the most influential human in history. And so whatever you think about him, it would be wise to at least understand what he says about himself and what the Bible says about him and not make an assessment of him based on a caricature that you might hold 
of the people who follow him or the faults of people like me who follow him and all of us. The wise thing to do would be to take him on his terms and make an assessment of who he is. And I would recommend reading this gospel, John, because in chapter 20 he says this gospel is written so that you would know who he is, so that you would believe. So John's laying out the facts of who he is. So if you are not a believer or you are a young person who's been raised by believers and now you're at the place where you're drawing your own conclusions and you're not sure about your parents' faith. By the way, let me say that, please let us know about, please let someone know about that. Let your parents know about that. Um, That's part of why we have a parent youth ministry. We're not trying to hide that and say, boy, those kind of questions, don't ask that. No, those questions need to be asked. And I wouldn't assume that you would just, on your own, believe everything your parents do. As a matter of fact, you can't be a believer just because they are. You must have a new heart and faith on your own to be a believer. Jesus must reveal himself to you. You can't believe in your heart, really, just because your parents do. So it's not only okay, it's actually to be expected that you would ask some questions about who is Jesus. If you never do, that's concerning, actually. So, whether you're a skeptic, an outsider, a guest, you're relating to folks like that, you're a young person that's grown up around this, and you've never really thought about it, I want to encourage you to read this gospel and let this Bible speak for itself and see what conclusions you come to. Ask God, you know, speak to me through the Bible and see what happens. You owe that to yourself to have an informed conclusion. And if you are here as a skeptic, Please have an informed conclusion and not an ignorant one about who Jesus is. Okay, not only does he tell us that he's God, we're going to move quickly now through this rest. He also tells us that he is the creator. So verse 2 is kind of a restatement. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is eternal. Jesus is with God. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. Okay, again, that reflects Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here, Jesus is described, we might say more technically, as the agent of creation. For what it says is that everything was made through him. This isn't the only place in the Bible this comes up. Colossians 3, for instance, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So that is, again, breathtaking. The one who created everything is the one who came to serve people, the created us, to lay down his life as our substitute. One person wrote, everything owes its existence to the word. Because through the word, through Jesus, the Son, everything is created. So he is the creator. Fifthly, Jesus is the life. That continues with the parallel of Genesis 1 because there is the creation of life early in the book of Genesis. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life. So Jesus is life. And that life was the light of men. He is life. Jesus gives life. Physical life is from God. Spiritual life is from God. Both are from 
Jesus. God gives the air that we breathe in our lungs. And John 3 is going to make the point that Jesus not only gives physical life, but in order to know God, you must have spiritual life. You must experience a regeneration, a rebirth, a new birth, a born again, however you want to say it, that you must experience that and that you experience that because God grants that. And so he is the giver of life, new life, spiritual life. In John 14, Jesus says this, that he is the way, the truth. He is the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So there he's talking about spiritual life. You cannot be reconciled to the Father. You cannot know the Father unless you come through Jesus, who is the life. He also says here that he is the light. That's the last thing. That's the sixth idea here, the sixth truth. Jesus is the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Boy, that is totally parallel to Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. Jesus is the light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. We talked about this truth at Christmas time this year. Isaiah 9, it says that those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. And we talked about how living uh, without Christ is like living in darkness. The reason that metaphor is used is because we are ignorant of God and who he is fully when we are dwelling in darkness. And so that's when we say, oh, the lights came on, or I didn't know about that. I was in the dark. I mean, that's the same language of this metaphor. And the scripture also teaches that being in darkness is, it, darkness is not only ignorance, but it's evil. It's, it, we're in darkness because we're opposed to the light. Uh, look over at John three nineteen. He's going to use this light and dark language uh, again. Three nineteen. this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So Jesus comes, this is part of John's gospel, a big point, the light comes. The Father sends the light, and as the light, he exposes the darkness, and he lights the way, shows the way of how we can relate to the Father. So, John tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us through this author, John, God tells us that Jesus is God, that, I'm sorry, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus is with God, He tells us that Jesus is God. He tells us that Jesus is the creator or the agent of creation, we might say. He tells us Jesus is the life, and he tells us Jesus is the light. And he makes the point that the historical Jesus is the eternal creator God. What difference does that make to our lives? Well, realizing that Jesus is God will affect how we read every page of the Gospel of John. It really changes everything. First of all, he is eternal. The Jesus we encounter in the Bible is way beyond us. When we have appropriate awe towards God, we, we, are, we are appropriately sized before God. Our evaluation of ourselves changes when we see how great he is. He is not the best human ever. I mean, that would be true, but he's not the best human ever. He is the God-man, and he is in a different category altogether. We cannot manage Jesus. We cannot control Jesus. We will not completely figure Jesus out because he is a being unlike us. He is like us. The God-man is like us, but he's also very much unlike us because he is without beginning. 
there is always more to know of him. Knowing Christ, he is inexhaustible. Knowledge of Jesus is inexhaustible. We will never know everything about him or we would be God. The claim of this text is that that, that he is eternal and there is tremendous mystery in that and that mystery should provoke worship in us. I believe an appropriate response to John 1 is pausing and worshiping. It is It is stopping and saying, you are God and I'm not. And and the person I am about to meet in this story, Jesus, he is completely different. He is eternal. He is eternal. He also tells us that he's the creator. All things were made by him. And Colossians tells us all things were made for him. That means God, as the creator, owns everything. So this makes a big difference in our life. This truth right here, we say, well, how is this very practical? Well, here's how it's practical. He made everything, and without him, not anything was made. Thus, as the creator, he owns everything. That means he owns my time. He owns my relationship. He owns my finances. He owns my gifts and abilities. He owns my stuff and things. He owns everything. I mean, see, this knowing that he's the creator, that, that really should affect how I view my stuff. As a matter of fact, that should obliterate the category, my stuff. There is no such category for the believer. Well, really for everybody, but for, knowledgeable, for the knowledgeable believer, there is not my stuff. There is God owns everything, and I am managing, or the Bible word for that is stewarding his stuff. God owns me. The Bible says by redemption that we are bought with a price. So God owns me, and I am to live for his worship. That infuses tremendous dignity into our service. I mean, if you're here serving some way this morning, ushering, you're not just filling a slot because we needed to tell people where to sit. I mean, someone in children's ministry, you're not just filling a slot because we really needed a babysitter so the parents could get a break and come down and get a sermon in for the week. That's not what we're about. We're about, God, you own us. Our life is for your glory. We are serving both within the church, within our family, within the marketplace, within the neighborhood. We are serving and living our lives because you own us. You own everything, and we want to steward all that you've given us. We want to leverage everything at our disposal for your glory, for your purpose. And so there's tremendous, tremendous honor and dignity and purpose in taking what you have and using it for God in giving to others, in helping others, in changing a diaper, in teaching a class, in playing an instrument up here this morning. Whatever it is, it's all to be used for the glory of God, for he is the creator and he owns everything. And we're taking his time, his talents that he's given us, his treasures, and we are using them intentionally for his glory. That's what difference it makes to know that Jesus is the creator. It changes how we view things. It changes our view of grace. Because the God who's existed forever, the word comes to serve us and to give his life for us. He is the life. What difference does that mean? He's eternal. He's the creator. He's the life. That should affect our thinking. We should love life because he's the giver of life. We should protect life for he is the giver of life. We should treasure and value life. And as the one who gives life, He is the one who controls situations. We can confidently pray to him when someone is sick, ill, 
dying because he is the life and he may choose to impart ongoing life and heal. We'll see that throughout. He's giving life throughout the Gospels. He's raising from the dead in a few occasions. He is the life. For those who desire children, for instance, and are unable to conceive, Jesus has that power to grant life. He does grant life. For those who don't know him, he grants, he is the only one that grants spiritual life. So just as we would pray for physical life, for someone that's sick, or for someone who's yet to be born that we're praying that God would give us the gift of a child, we also pray for spiritual life in the same way. He grants spiritual life. He is the life. So we can pray, God, would you grant new life to this person that does not know you? Would you grant them regeneration? Would you give them new life in you? Because he is the life, and thus we can confidently pray in those kind of issues of life. He is the light. He is the light. Now here's where mission and scent appears in this passage. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Look at verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. There's that scent. 1-9. There's that scent. The true light was coming into the world. The Father was sending the Son who would invade the darkness and bring the light of God by teaching truth, by demonstrating the power of God to heal, to, to exercise authority over nature through miracles like walking on water and multiplying bread and fish and healing bodies and raising from the dead. The one who would come with the power over Satan, expelling demons from people. The light is invading the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. It's not a dualistic universe where it's kind of like 50% light, 50% dark, and they kind of battle it out and see what, we happen, see what happens. No, there's darkness, and when the light comes in, the darkness disappears. You walk into a dark room and you turn on a light. The room doesn't go, if all the lights work, the room doesn't go 50% dark, 50% light, and let's have a battle. No, the, the darkness disappears and the light invades. And that's what Christ does. He comes as the life. He comes revealing God because he is God. He comes to show the power and the glory of God. He comes bringing the the grace and the mercy of God to people who are in darkness. And not only does he do that, but on three different occasions that I can think of, Jesus makes the point that as I have been sent, so I'm sending you. This is what Matthew says in a different gospel. He says to his followers, you are the light of the world. He says, so let your light shine. Do you see that the light came into the world? The light came into the world to reveal God, to give us the the, the scripture, and then to send us as the light of the world so that our light would shine, so that we would be representatives of the Father, so that we would mirror God by the Holy Spirit living through us. We would point people to God, that we would be a light in darkness with the promise that the darkness will not overcome the light. Those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. Many people will come to the light through the witnesses, the light that is placed amidst the darkness. A few presidents ago, the thousand points of light, I just thought of that. We're we're like the thousand points of light in the darkness. And then when we come together, there's a bright light that shines, the glory of God. As they see that we are one in him, then they will know and they will believe. Where are we called to shine the light this week? 
Where are we to be like? You don't have to look. You don't have to do anything different than what you normally do, probably. You just have to live your life and realize God Almighty who became flesh in Jesus Christ and died and gave his life for you so that you would experience new light, the sent one that has changed everything for you, sends you to the grocery store, to the park, to the office, to the neighborhood, wherever you are. How can we be a light where we are, pointing people to this God? So how do we respond to this type? I didn't give a ton of super specific applications. I just gave categories of application. How do we respond to a truth like this? Well, first of all, when faced with the eternal nature of Jesus, we worship. We steward everything we've been given by this creator for his glory, for he owns us. In Colossians 3, it was created for him. We trust the one who creates by a mere word. The God who could speak everything out of nothing can change your circumstances. He can radically change your circumstances this week, or he can leave your circumstances the same and radically change your heart and your response to those circumstances. Because he can do much greater. He created everything out of nothing. That creator affects our lives this week so we can serve him. We can serve with dignity and we can serve with faith knowing the one who owns everything is entrusting us to use things for his glory. We cherish the grace of God because the creator came and suffered for us. We value physical life and spiritual life and we trust him for both. We love the light of the sent one. And we are living sent, seeking to bring the light into the darkness that people may meet the one true God, Jesus Christ. Last thought out of this passage. 2 Corinthians 3.8 makes a very, it's one of the most important verses, I think, in the whole Bible on how to grow in Christ. And it says, basically, that as we behold the glory of God, we are transformed into his image. As we see the glory of God in Christ, we are changed. One person, it may have been John Piper, I don't know. Someone will probably tell me at the break here. But someone said this, we are becoming what we are beholding. That's why meditation and thought and consideration of a very theological passage like this, a very philosophical passage, in the beginning was the word, wow, whoa, let me get a cup of coffee because I don't know what that means. And that's deep. This feels like the theological sort of deep end of the pool, I've heard it said. But the reason it's worth rigorous thought and consideration and prayer and application is because you will become what you do behold. And if we are amazed and our awe is fully spent on beholding, whoa, all this world has to offer. And I'm not saying despise what this world has to offer. Just just receive it. I still cheer at the games. I yell, yes. I still love music and technology. I love all that. But ultimately, if we spend it all on that, then that's what we'll become. Experts in the world, lovers of the world, passionate about the world. But if we behold the Savior who has no beginning, who is distinct in role but unified in essence, is God, consider the one who created everything, the one who is the life and who is the light. If we consider what that means as we go through this gospel, 
we will become like the one we behold as we apply what he speaks to us. That's the promise of 2 Corinthians 3.8. Most of the rest of the John will be more uh, tangible than this passage. But this passage sets us up for everything else, to behold the one who is everything, the glorious Savior, Jesus. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.